นโมทัสสะภวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามัสสะsays, the question of what happens after I die comes to my mind often. This happens on the background of having been brought up to believe that I will be born again somewhere else as another life, and indeed that I came into this life from a previous life. Having listened to the Buddha's teachings on anatta or non-self, I find myself wondering how can another birth occur when there is no self to be reborn. Did the Buddha teach about rebirth? Is this tendency to wonder what happens after death mere idle speculation? With regards to the second question, it could be that we could consider what was said in the scriptures. About the subject of rebirth, and and or I could talk about how I personally have confidence in these teachings. However, I suspect that if I was to approach the question in that way, it may not really serve the questioner so well. Because what I suspect is behind this question, and which ties in with the first question, is the whole subject of how do we feel when we're faced with not sure, when we're not sure about something, when we don't feel certain, when we don't feel secure. How do we handle that? Certainly, the great mystery of what happens after we die can challenge our sense of certainty and security. And there are a lot of teachings around that tell us the materialists tell us there's nothing, and then there's other spiritual teachings that come up with various scenarios of what happens, but. The best that can happen with those is that one can. Well, it's not the best, but what often happens is that people then just grasp at these stories. So, well, this is what happens. And the Buddha did teach about previous lives and future lives and rebirth. However, just clinging 
to a belief is not the point. It may well be that we can hear what the Buddha said or read what the Buddha said and have confidence in that, trust in that, and that trust could alleviate the anxieties and concerns we have of it. However, for many people, because we are so used these days to attaching to intellectual certainty, we're so used to getting a good feeling from having some abstract information. It wasn't always this way. It was only relatively recently in human evolution that, that the majority of people have had access to, to abstract knowledge. Before the printing press, the majority of people just ascribed the unknown to the Almighty. The Almighty will take care of it, whether the Almighty was God or, or Dhamma or the Tao. There was this Almighty, there was this, this Lord, this which governed over, this which ruled over all things, all existence. And the majority of human beings, for the majority of human evolution, have believed in something like that. And it was okay to believe, up until relatively recently, it was considered okay. Myth and mystery were not spoken about in the pejorative. They were myth and mystery and awe and wonder were okay and were, were tolerated and just normal. However, over the last century, in the way that we humans have evolved, with increasing access to abstract knowledge, relative knowledge, a phenomenal amount of information, the tendency has been, I would suggest, to become intoxicated by the good feeling that comes from clinging to that information, to that relative knowledge. It's not real knowledge, it's not secure knowledge, because it keeps being replaced, keeps being updated. Even scientists these days will admit that there's lots that we don't know about. And whilst myth and mystery and awe and wonder have been replaced by facts and figures to a large extent, it doesn't really provide us with a sense of security, a sense of confidence. So, in response to these questions, I would encourage using our training to really develop the ability to dwell confidently and not knowing. Confidently, consciously, not knowing. To know when we don't know. To know what not knowing feels like. And from that perspective, we can acknowledge the reality of our situation, not just default to finding some substitute, some synthetic sense of certainty. And I would suggest that the conscious, confident, not knowing state of mind is, is actually an optimum way of approaching the big questions of life. Like these days, scientists and philosophers are 
know very, very little about the nature of consciousness. So the only thing they do know is that it's, it's tremendously important. But they don't know much more than that. And if we are to approach what these days the scientists refer to as the hard problem of consciousness, if we to approach it with a, with a kind of a driven mind state of somehow we're inadequate because we don't know and we've got to find out. We've got to be sure. In other words, if we follow our addiction to the good feeling that comes with clinging to relative knowledge and believing, convincing ourselves that we're safe just because we've got a good idea about something, then our minds and hearts are to a large degree closed. So it's not even good science to approach these important questions by clinging to the good feeling that comes from synthetic certainty. It wasn't that long ago that human beings thought that planet Earth was the centre of the universe and it was it was a shared so-called knowledge. This is the truth, that everything revolves around the Earth. The Earth is the centre of everything. And uh, poor old Galileo got himself into big trouble by sharing his, his uh, insights into the matter. Also, it wasn't that long ago that somebody got sick with some disease and it was often thought that some evil spirits had possessed somebody and and then thanks to science they found out it was just dirty drinking water. Dirty drinking water is really dangerous. And so you understand the importance of having clean drinking water, well then don't have to cling to the so called knowledge that it's evil spirits that are making it sick. It wasn't real knowledge at all. It was speculation, it was synthetic. And so we do run a risk so long as we are still feeding on that good feeling that comes from clinging to an idea, then we're very vulnerable. It's okay for children, like children are told stories and because for the sake of their development it's okay that they have a perception of relative predictability and stability and as they grow up. However, the process of growing up is, involves owning up to the fact that a lot of life is not certain at all. In fact, all of life, all of conditioned existence is uncertain. Sabe sankara anicca. All conditioned phenomena is uncertain. And yet, do we really stop and look at the implications of that? And still on planet Earth, there's still a lot of people who think that you know, as a tsunami, it must be because people are being punished by some divine forces or something. Tsunamis are just what happens. If you're on planet Earth, Tsunamis happen. It's just like the tides, they happen. Volcanoes happen. Hurricanes happen. 
I mean, instead of actually saying, wow, this is a really dangerous predicament we find ourselves in here being a human on planet Earth, this expression of consciousness is really hard work and owning up to the uncertainty and insecurity of a situation. For many people, they will still turn to stories. Catching a cold doesn't necessarily mean that you working out your bad karma. It could just mean that you went outside in the cold weather without a hat on. So it's important that we look at very closely how vulnerable we allow ourselves to be by continuing to cling to the pleasant feeling that comes from I know, when in fact we don't really know, we're just holding to an idea. So if we want to do that, well then I would refer back to the last week's talk, we talked about the five spiritual faculties. Sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya, these faculties, these potentials that we have as human beings. If they're optimal, if they're functioning, then these real questions, like questions about reality, like how do we accord with the deep, all-pervading uncertainty of existence, then there's a better chance we'll be able to meet those questions. If we don't, and this is worth really noting, why do we turn to stories? Because we haven't developed the spiritual faculties. We don't know how to trust in the teachings of those who are wiser than we are. Maybe we're conceitedly convinced by, well, if I think it's true, then it's true, which is a very dangerous approach to life. Mm. Or all truths are relative is another position that many people take. There is the possibility of reading the teachings, listening to the teachings by the Buddha and the great disciples and choosing to actually trust these people know what they're talking about. And they advise us to develop these other faculties like inquiry, like cultivating an equanimous curiosity rather than just desperately complaining about how unfair it is because there's a tsunami or a hurricane or a pandemic. Looking into why is it that we believe in stories? Why is it that we cling to false sense of security? Why is it that we keep feeding our addiction to synthetic certainty? That's a really important question. And then, even if we've got that question alive within us, if we haven't cultivated sufficient steadiness of attention, the discipline of attention, which is samadhi, or the watchfulness, the alertness, which is mindfulness, and, and the energy, which is very hard, if we haven't developed these faculties, then when we're challenged by life's very real questions, we're found lacking. But that's not reality's problem. 
It just means that we haven't done our work yet. So really acknowledging how vulnerable we let ourselves be if we're still feeding on the good feeling that comes from I know when in fact we don't know. If we're just telling ourselves stories about reality. And from that, perhaps getting in touch with the possibility of consciously not knowing. What does it feel like to not know? Inspire ourselves, encourage ourselves to doing this work, to developing the spiritual faculties so that we can really meet these very real questions for the sake of our own well-being, but also so we can really contribute something to the world in which we live. There's so much at the moment. I don't know whether we can say this, but it seems to me that it's probably incomparable throughout human history because primarily of technology and the internet. The shared degree of and the intensity of confusion. Now, conspiracy theories and fundamentalist beliefs and identity crises that we have like now, the global collective identity crisis that is taking place around planet Earth. This is not altogether new, but the fact that it's there's such a contagion taking place, the degree to which people are affected by these movements. And why is it happening? Because the perception of I don't feel safe unless I know what's happening. That relative knowledge and clinging to it is it's like a drug. Cling to the idea. That's what we felt when we were children, but did we ever really grow up Do we ever really admit we're going to have to feel the feeling of insecurity and the whole body-mind? Feel what it feels like to feel unsafe? Or have we surrounded ourselves with synthetic sense of security? So we can look at these issues, these difficulties, not so as to make ourselves even more unhappy, but quite the opposite, to actually to encourage it. And there's work to do. And, and this is why we're so extraordinarily fortunate that we, we do have access to teachings that say this work is worth doing and this is the work that needs to be done. Training the spiritual faculties and then inquiring into the very feeling of what it feels like to feel insecure, unsafe, uncertain. Ceasing from replacing that painful feeling with some substitute. So, oh, I feel better now because I believe in such and such a story. Oh, I feel good again. It's tempting. It's very tempting. It's it's like delicious food. It's tempting to eat more of it. But if we eat too much of it, it's not going to be good for us. Relative security, relative certainty is absolutely fine. But when we cling to it, then we're actually abusing the process. I think last week in the talk I gave, I gave the example 
well, if it wasn't last week, then sometime I think I gave an example of what it was, what it's like when I've found myself, and I, I'm sure other people likewise. And you're in a situation where something has to be said, something difficult needs to be said to somebody, and you know it's your job to say it, and you really don't know what to say, or how to say it, or when to say it. How do we handle that situation? It needs to be said. I don't know what words to use. I don't know how to say it. I don't know when to say it. I don't know if I can say it. But I have to say it. Well, if we can allow ourselves to know that we don't know, that dilemma has got space in which it can be held. If we're still in the contracted state of limited awareness, which comes from clinging to the idea that I must get it right, I must know when and how and what to say, if we're clinging to that expectation, because that's our habit, that's where we find safety, clinging to views, there's a very limited possibility of getting it right. Similarly, when you're on the receiving end of, of somebody's, somebody else's pain. I know in my own case, when if people are sometimes, as they do, share with me their, their struggles, their confusion and, and disorientation and distress, and quite a lot of the time I, I, I feel able to listen and I don't feel terribly disturbed when I pay attention to other people's disturbance. However, if they're angry and they then project that out on me, that really shows up my limitations. That's where I have to work hard. I really, I really suffer when people project their, their anger out onto me. And, and it does happen. <laughs> As the abbot of the monastery, it's not really I say things that people don't want to hear. You know, they, okay, so there's no more internet. We're going on retreat for the next three months. And Maybe some people think that's unfair and let me know about it. It's very normal when, certainly living in a monastery, to have the attachments of views and opinions really show up because we don't have so many distractions. Somebody asked Ajahn Chah once, what is the biggest difficulty with teaching your disciples? And he answered, their attachment of views and opinions. And yet when we're caught in attachment to views and opinions, we just we don't see that's what's going on. We just feel so justified. And, and then if we don't get what we want, it's very easy to project our wild, unruly passion out onto somebody else. And how dare you stop me from getting what I want? And so when that happens to me and somebody's projecting their ill will, their aversion or downright hatred sometimes to me, I really don't handle that well. Here I am after 40 or more years of practice and I still find it really hurtful, really difficult when that happens. And I look at my intentions and say, well, you know, I didn't want to make them angry. I'm trying to be helpful. And, and yet, boom, this is what comes back. And, and if I get caught up in my indignation, say, after all the help that I've given them, all the support I've given them, and and then this is what they give me back and 
this is just not fair, this is, shouldn't have. Well, that's the five-year-old version of me. When I don't get my way, I feel justified in blaming somebody else and, and demanding that they change so that I can be happy again. If we're training a witness seriously, then those very situations are what show up where we need to work. This is where the work is. If I'm caught up in reacting when somebody projects their, their unreceived dukkha onto me, that's where I'm still vulnerable. That's where I am still creating more dukkha. So how do I deal with that? How do I practice in that context? Well, one of the most helpful things I can do is to admit I don't know how to handle this, even though I wish I could. Even after 40 years of practice, I still don't like this happening. I really wish that I could handle it better. Lots of situations I can handle, but this one I still don't handle very well. If I can just admit I don't know how to handle this, there's increased possibility of learning. It makes a huge difference. Feel the feeling of, I want to be sure, I want to be able to handle this. Feel that feeling and feel beyond it. Remember the refuge in selfless just knowing awareness. It's okay to not know how to handle something. Even if I really think I should, even if I really want to, if the reality is I can't handle this, what's called for, the first thing that's called for, is to admit, I don't know how to handle this. Oh, that's okay. Oh, I just don't know how to handle it. It doesn't mean to say that I'm bad just because I don't know how to handle it. And then this space opens up, perspective opens up. And then our other faculties, you know, curiosity, can come to bear and say, well, how can I learn to? So we're no longer demanding that we be right all the time and that we fix the problem. We're no longer blindly clinging to that sense of certainty and false security. Now we're inquiring, genuinely inquiring, how can I handle this? And so we're going to, what sort of, what sort of dukkha is this anyway? Is this some resistance that I'm doing right now? Is this some resistance that I'm creating right now? Is this, is this present generated dukkha or is this some old unreceived dukkha? Maybe this pain that somebody's projecting out triggers something from the past that I didn't deal with properly. Or is it what I like to call adopted dukkha where you know, we've all got our own pain, our own fear, our own anger, but if we're surrounded by people who've got a backlog of their own seriously denied dukkha, it's almost like being caught up in their pain, their anger. So if we've got an open-hearted, open-minded, embodied quality of awareness, sensitivity, then we're better able to inquire, what sort of dukkha is this? And where is the resistance? Is it a story in the head? Is it an emotional feeling in the heart? Is it an old pattern in the body? Is it the breathing? 
If we don't have agility of attention, which we don't have if we're clinging to the idea that we're supposed to be sure about everything, struggling to get that good feeling back of, I know what I'm doing. If we're still doing that, well, then we don't have the agility and we don't have the perspective. So conversely, if we have been doing our work and we recognize how vulnerable we leave ourselves by feeding this addiction to synthetic certainty, then maybe we find that challenges like that when we're really tested with something that we don't know how to handle are not a disaster. And in fact, they're showing this is, this is the very place, this is the very point, this is the very time when I see the work that I need to be doing and we feel good about it. I'm probably not going to go thanking the person who just put all their pain onto you, but on another level there can also be a quiet sense of appreciation. I, this is what I need to be doing. So with response to these questions this evening about dwelling and confidently dwelling and not knowing, is this something that we're supposed to be learning to do and can we bring this to such important questions about what happens after we die? My response to that would be yes, indeed. Develop the refuge in selfless just knowing awareness. Trust in the example and the teachings that we've had good fortune to receive and start to little by little learn to feel what does it feel like in the body, in the heart, in the mind when we stop telling ourselves stories, stop getting lost in sensations. What does it feel like here and now to not know something? Can we tolerate that? We have to learn how to tolerate that because this life is uncertain. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sadhu, <laughs>